Hi, this is Nayetta, and you're listening to The Health Show. To The Health Show. And you're listening to The Health Show. And you're listening to The Health Show. And you're listening to The Health Show. Hi, this is Nayetta. Hi, this is Carrie. And you're listening to The Help Show. Series three, The History of Mental Health in America, episode seven, Latin Mental Health, Costa Rica. In this month's episode, Latin Mental Health, Costa Rica, Nayetta and Carrie discuss how Costa Rica's active aging, judicial system, community, and foundation of education have long stored a place in the Central American nation. Costa Rica has one of the most incredible biodiversity and rich cultures, a passion for freedom, a history of democracy, equality, and education for all. The people of Costa Rica who call themselves Ticos are famous for their cheerful outlook, their conflict-averse nature, and their, la- their laid-back approach to life. These culture traits combined with the country's relatively high standard of living have led some researchers to conclude that Costa Rica is the happiest country on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Costa Rica is a beautiful country. Um, its culture is a vibrant blend of indigenous heritage and Spanish colonial influence with a dash of Jamaican, Chinese, and other immigrant cultures leading character and customs. A nation whose official language is Spanish, but where large portions of the population actually speak English, Bribri, Creole, and Mandarin Chinese as their first languages. A nation proud to be without any army since 1949, also a country that has a long history of public services, including education and health care, available to all. A nation proud to share its cultural riches. If you are a new listener to The Help Show, we would love to hear from you. Please visit thehelpshow.org and let us know how we can help you today. Welcome back. So, Nayetta, how was the trip? Amazing. Awesome. <laughs> it was really great. Um, I learned a lot. Um, it was like a movie. It was like a really, really good movie. Um, everything was so beautiful. Um, the people, Man, the people were so kind. Okay. Um, the food was great. The culture was amazing. It was a, a lot of a lot of different, a lot of churches. Like uh-huh. more here in, in America. <laughs> like <Okay>. everywhere. <laughs> but um, but besides that, everybody was really. It was like. Everybody was really nice. Um, I saw poverty, of course. Um, it was a different type of poverty. Um, How so? It was super poor. Yeah. Yeah, but but like, what I, but what I didn't see poverty beyond like what we see. Poverty. Well, yes, beyond what we see. But when I I didn't what I didn't see I didn't see homelessness mm. like I see here in the United States. We'll talk more about that when I talk to um, Professor um, Judd. Okay. But it was different. Like, the community actually reaches out and they help their poverty. They actually reach out and they help their homelessness and give them places to stay and um, help the single mothers. And it was just, it was different. A, a, a totally different um, a, a view um, that um, I wish I could have stayed more and did, did research on mm-hmm. and why. Um, they were very happy people. Um, I really liked that. I, I was in a, a place of, um, and it's, it, it's kind of weird to say I was in this real spiritual place. Yeah. And I lived in it. I stayed in the jungle. I stayed in the rainforest. Oh, nice. So you could hear the monkeys would sound like dogs. It was weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> in uh-huh. the jungle. Um, I heard, you know, frogs and different type of birds and all type of mammals and all, all kind of stuff in the jungle. But it was like soothing, relaxing. Yeah. 
um, I had no worries. You know, you think you're in a place in the jungle where someone would attack you, right. where I was in a place of serenity. And so it was, uh, I was a very great experience. And that I, sounds very powerful just in itself. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suggest anybody, if you, if you go out of the country, really, really go, um, go understand the culture. What was your favorite part of the experience? Um, the rainforest. The rainfall, it was so, I actually drank spring water from, like, spring water mm -hmm. from the waterfalls. Okay. So we did this hike, which I believe is like an hour and 30, hour and 40, so we did our mudslides. It was just like, it was crazy. <laughs> and, but what was so beautiful about it, after you, it's like you hike, they, well, they actually call me, they call me a goat. They said, now you, you climb these mountains like a goat, honey. Because I, <laughs> I was climbing up, I was climbing. But um, what was my, the reason it was my favorite, because, I didn't realize that I love the nature as much as I love the nature. So I, I, I started learning me mm -hmm. there. I didn't, I didn't know that I love nature so, so much. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't on my, I really wasn't on Instagram, didn't miss that. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't watch TV, so I'm okay with not watching TV. Um, I actually got to meet new people. Oh yeah, and I ate termites. Oh, yeah. You ate them? I ate them. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, if you're in the jungle, which, come on, we're in the United States. Yeah. But if you're out in the forest and you get lost, um, termites are protein. Right. There's a source of protein. I mean, I've heard that. Are, what do they taste like, though? Okay. So have you ever, like, fell in the grass and you ate some dirt a little bit or ate some grass? It tastes like grass. It, it, it doesn't have really have a taste. It's not even nasty. Okay. And so I stuck my clean. It's pretty clean. I stuck my finger in there and put in the turmeric got on my hand. I put it in my mouth and ate the turmeric. Live, just like damn, fresh. Yes. <laughs> Great search of And you protein. didn't gag or anything. No, I'm just I'm kind of fierce, man. I I learned how fierce I was. Right. I saw snakes and poisonous frogs. I wasn't scared. Okay. I ain't no scared. Good. I'm impressed. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, um, so, Carrie, so what countries have you been to? I haven't actually traveled to a lot of countries. I mean, I've crossed the border in Mexico um, and, you know, walked around there, but that's about it. So, you know, um, Costa Rica and Mexico are the most happy, are the happy places. Mm -hmm. to, that's what I hear. Yeah. Well, I Even though they're the, poor. When you, yeah, the quality, they're poor and like the way we compare the quality of, of life just monetary wise. Absolutely. So that there's irony in that, I think. And, and you know, I think that also has a lot to do with family. Yeah. You know, and um, it has a lot, what people values, like you said, monetary, what their values truly are. And I learned that, I, like, literally I, I spent, in two weeks, I spent maybe 200 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's with tips and everything, food, yeah. everything. 200 bucks. I imagine, like, and I don't know, you're gonna you're gonna have to share this with us, but like the resources are different, whereas perhaps we don't value the resource of family because we have so many other monetary things. Absolutely. I don't know, I'm just like putting this out there. And here you don't have as much of that, then it just kind of really brings focus to that that's I think at the end of the day much more important than his family. Yeah. It made me look at how um about my family and how I treat friends. I, I really I really did a lot of reflecting when I was in Costa Rica and, I, and maybe when I came back made me wanted to um, to change. Nice. You know, I'm all for about the for the better. Yeah. I, I'm always about change. 
Yeah. I'm never too old to learn new tricks. Mm -hmm. um, I remember somebody um, told me, that's just who you are. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a woman of change. That's right. And I think like in, in our core nature, we all are. I mean, it's all about constantly evolving and, and changing. And so it's inevitable. We can either embrace it or we can fight it, but it's going to happen. And, and, I, and I think living, um, being able to live outside your comfort zone mm -hmm. really shows the person who you are. And your strength and yeah. resiliency. Ab absolutely. So. so here's to eating termites. Mm -mm, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really great. So I'm wondering, like, from all of that, um, how cultural, culture competent do you think you were before you went to Costa Rica to now? Well, I think I'm, well, I'm one to 10. Before mm -hmm. I went, I'm gonna say I was a seven. The reason I'm gonna say I'm a seven because you know Hispanics do live here in the United States. Mm -hmm. I live in Dallas, Texas, so mm -hmm. there's Hispanic. So they're so the culture's almost almost the same. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that much um, difference. But the difference that make that makes me more culture competent. If you see someone with mental health issues in Costa Rica, like so, I was at this hotel. I'll give you a good example. Mm -hmm. So I was at this hotel, a really nice hotel in San Jose, and we stayed like a week in the city. And um, this one guy, he was, I thought he was homeless. But I don't think he was homeless because he would go upstairs. This is a nice hotel. So he, he was like, what do you call it? He had, he had Tourette. He would yell. He was, he, what's it, what's that? Um, form of Tourette? Yeah. Just, yeah, like he would just yell out different things and inappropriate things. Like, you know, can't say on the show, but he was, whoa. Right. Very. Um, yeah. <laughs> and no one moved. No one said anything. No one did anything. Then he, I remember one morning, because I would get up at four, and I still, I was studying, doing some stuff for the show, just some mm -hmm. research and stuff. And I was in this little office space, and, mm -hmm. and he would go in the office space and put tape over the little camera on the, on the computer. Mm. So I got there before he did one day. Mm -hmm. And so I took, the, took it off, you know? Oh. <laughs> and, and I was doing my work. Okay. And so he came in there, he was so polite and said, well, when you get done out here, can you, can, uh, when you, well, how long are you going to be before you're going to be out here? And I said, well, I'm going to give him about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know, Rashid. And he said, okay, went back out there and was screaming. The reason I say this is because if, if you were in any other, if you are at a hotel here in Dallas and you were doing all this screaming and yelling, you'd call the police on I'm telling you, this is what I know, not what mm -hmm. I think. Mean. Mm -hmm. He would have been incarcerated. Right. And his his family would have had to get him out of jail that day. Mm -hmm. So in Costa Rica, the way they, what I noticed at that moment, the way they look at an issue with mental health is that he's going to be okay. He's not harming anybody. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, I was like, wow. Okay. So, so yeah, so. Do you think it's like they just, they had a, they had an understanding or education about it. Like they recognized, okay, this is um, this is um, perhaps a tick or you know, a I, you know, I think or something. And so we're going to be tolerant of that because really, it's no harm. Whereas, do we, do we do something because we don't have that knowledge or understanding? Like, help I, me a little bit to understand what you think okay. the difference is. In that I, I I think the difference is because, <clears throat> and I was going to say it at the end of the show, but I'll kind of. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so when we were there, and I'm giving you this analogy, and I'm giving you this instance so you can kind of understand. So when we were there, we visit, we visit a house, halfway house. 
Mm. Okay. And so what halfway house is when you go to jail, yeah. you, you know, transition, ha- yeah, you transition, you get into freedom. So in Costa Rica, if let's say you do five years. Mm. Okay. You do five years um, and you go to the halfway house to finish out, you know, to finish your sentence, mm-hmm. you know. So what they do, um, you have two and a half years. Let's say you have a year left. Every week, you go through counseling. Okay. Every gotcha. week, you, you get with your family, you go through counseling, then they skill train you. Because you've been incarcerated, so that means you have lost the skills that you, you had prior to yeah. because you've been incarcerated. Yeah. So the reason I say that, it lets you know that Costa Rica is very in tune when it comes to mental health because they understand the importance of counseling. That transition. And, Absolutely. Yeah support yeah and and also um they really reform their um the people there and well when they're in jail they really reform people there but also what i i found very interesting when when you do your five years you're done Mm -hmm. they take it off your record oh wow yeah okay so that's a huge difference that's a huge difference in here wow so they when when i mean they are they put their money and their time back into their health care, back into their education, back into their public services. They actually do that. Yeah. Well, this is going to be really exciting to hear all the information <laughs> you found out about in these interviews you've got coming up. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited for you guys to hear the, um, the interviews that I actually had. It's absolutely amazing. Okay. In this episode, we discuss active aging, judicial system, community, foundation of education. Follow our podcast, The Help Show, all one word, and follow our host at Nyetta Reynolds. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Join the conversation. Our favorite part of recording a podcast each month is participating in the great conversations that happen on our show, on social media, in our comment section, you name it. Okay. Well, Dr. Rebecca Judd is one of our guests, and um, she has a doctorate in social work, a PhD from the University of Texas in Arlington, a master's of science in social work from the University of Texas at Arlington, and received her bachelor of social work from East Texas State University. After an 18-year career in social work, Dr. Rebecca Judd entered into the academia in 2008 as an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Texas A&M University Commerce. Her um, publications are um, several, actually, from starting in 2010 to 2013. Um, she wrote public and private programs that work in aging and poverty, a call to action, gay and lesbian households, perception of their family functioning, strengths and resiliency, ethical consequences of using social network sites for students in professional social work programs, um, Therapist and Bikers Against Child Abuse, Collaborate to Empower Abused Children, and um, one of her most recent in 2013 was the Social Justice, a shared program for social work and religion. So she's got quite a few out there that are pretty powerful and interesting work. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rebecca Judd. Hi, this is Nyetta, and you're listening to Series 3, The History of Mental Health in America, Episode 7, Latin Mental Health, Costa Rica. First, I want to thank... Um, Our special guest today, Dr. Rebecca Judd, Uh, I'm super excited about this interview. Um, She is a professor um, at Texas A&M Commerce, which I've had the privilege um, to attend and um, receive my Master's of Social Work, so this is beyond an honor 
to interview Dr. Rebecca Judd. And so today, first of all, first of all I want to lead the interview off with saying thank you, thank you, thank you. We call that the TTT. I'm being humble and grateful to have Dr. Rebecca Judd um, for the interview this month. Um, so the interview is a special interview because Dr. Rebecca Judd, she leads off um, the program for Texas A&M Comers for, um, for the study abroad program. And so mm-hmm. I she I had the honor to attend. Um, little quick story, so I wasn't going to attend at first. And I wanted to be able to leave the master's program at Texas A&M Commerce with an experience. And being able to attend this program was the best experience of my life. It opened my eyes so drastically about culture, about the educational system, about active aging, about so many different things. And so having Dr. Rebecca Judd um, to uh, to lead this program, you know, I, I would tell anybody, hey, go get your master's degree and then, you know, attend this program with Dr. Rebecca Judd. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we're going to start this interview off. I'm, I'm super excited. And so... Um, so do I call you Dr. Rebecca Judd, professor? You know, <laughs> what would you like for me to call you Dr. Rebecca Judd? Uh, you can call me Rebecca Judd. It's fine. Or Rebecca. It's fine. Oh, Rebecca. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Rebecca, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into the line of work. Of, of okay. All right. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, And you did attend our study abroad, so you know it's not one of my big areas to be speaking in public. So (laughs) please be patient. But um, and I also want to give you some um, kudos because uh, for your listeners, Naeda actually delayed her graduation by a semester so she could experience the study abroad. So she was really invested in that. So I'm thrilled to hear that she was able to come back with life-changing experiences because that is what it is about for our students. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I got in, I became a licensed social worker in 1990. Um, it must have been through some otherworldly intervention because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I just remember back in those days, we had a physical catalog that we had to look at to choose our classes, and I was like, oh, I like those. Um, but since becoming a social worker, I, it, it courses through my veins. I'm a social worker 100%. All of my degrees are in social work. All my um, work experiences in social work. I had close to 30 years working across the healthcare continuum um, before coming full-time into academia. So that's kind of what, what got me here now. Okay. So um, when we went to Costa Rica, when we first, I know when we first started the program and you guys were sending emails, it was kind of like, what do you know about culture competency? Mm-hmm. And so I think when you don't use those words, culture competency, you don't know really, like, what is it, you know? And so, first of all, I would like you to tell the audience what is culture competency and then why is it important, especially being able to, especially in the line of social work, um, and, and just in general, why is it important to be culture competent? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to give a disclaimer because I don't like the term cultural competency. 
Um, okay. It is the word that is promoted throughout council and social work education in terms of educational um, requirements, and it's a very common word. The, the term competency bothers me. I cannot be competent, meaning all-knowing, in anybody's culture other than my own. Um, so I really steer away from cultural competency, and I think a better term and a better context for it is cultural humility. Um, cultural humility is a concept that actually emerged out of um, a writing from Child Protective Services System, amazingly. Um, and But what it tells us is it tells us we always need to be curious and learning about others' experiences. So in the, it's other-oriented. Other it's not about me becoming all-knowing in somebody else's culture, but it's about me experiencing and being other-oriented so I can always be looking and learning from the other person. So I, I very much prefer cultural humility as opposed to cultural competency. But I think we all need that because not only in our society, which is the United States, but we are becoming much more global. The world, in, in essence, is becoming smaller. And we really have to strive to learn from each other and to understand the other aspects that are out there. Um, and so that we can, we can all grow because we all have positive things to bring to society. And so I, I just think cultural humility is, is a better concept. And it, it needs to be... Um, an aspect of what we do every day. Absolutely. You know, I never looked at it like that, having, you know, culture humility. It sounds better. It's almost like it, being it, like mm -hmm. culture humble. <laughs> it, it is. It, it's about being humble. You're exactly right. And that's, that's uh, one of the words that comes into that contextual definition of it, um, you know, is is recognizing and being proud of where I come from. I come from very rural area. Um, I'm a first generation student, um, but I'm a white female in a country that has, um, some people don't like the term white privilege, but it, but it actually is there. So I actually have to learn humility um, interacting with everybody, people from um, urban areas, um, people from different uh, races, but people from different gender identities, people from, we're, we're all the same, but we're all different too. So I think that's what cultural humility and that concept brings to it. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I think that when you are humble, it allows you to open up to have those experience with other cultures. Mm -hmm. And I actually learned that um, being in Costa Rica, you know, Mm -hmm. Even though it is a um, a Spanish culture, um, it's different. It's, it's different it than it would be from Mexico. It, it was mm -hmm. it's different, and so mm -hmm. you know I wasn't so uncomfortable because I do respect the traditions of the Hispanic culture um, here in Texas. And so when I went to Costa Rica, it was just it was like time twenty. <laughs> I was like, wow. I was like, oh my goodness. But um, I, I learned being, allowing myself to be culture, uh, humility, to have culture humility. I learned to like try new foods. Mm -hmm. um, I, tr I learned to explore um, living in a different uh, part of the world. Um, mm -hmm. 
there was no what we were in La Fortuna. There was really there was no air conditioner. You know, you know. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, we were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we had, but it wasn't bad. We were in a rainforest, mm-hmm. and so everything was so cool. And you know, I was really out of my um, out of out of my comfort zone. But mm-hmm. it was a great. It was it was a great being. It was great being out of my comfort zone. And so and yeah. being able to like you know eat the foods, talk to the people. I don't speak a lick, a lick of Spanish, but I still communicated through gestures. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that if I didn't have if if I wasn't open up, if I if I wasn't open to be culture um, competent or culture um, humility, I think I wouldn't even I wouldn't been able to experience those great experiences. Right. And if you also, if you didn't embrace being out of your comfort zone, that's part of the issues we run into is anytime we're uncomfortable, we want to draw back and be in our comfort zone. Growth never occurs in our own comfort zone. If we're, if we're comfortable, we're not growing. So I think embracing being out of that comfort zone is also an important part of developing cultural humility. Absolutely. So so we're going, so I'm kind of taking us like we're going through the whole motions of us visiting. So mm-hmm. remember that we we visit the, um, we went into more of the judicial system of, yes. of mm-hmm. Costa Rica. And so we mm-hmm. went, it wasn't a jail, it was like a halfway house, correct? It's called a semi-institution. Okay. So we went mm-hmm. to a semi-institution. So when we went there, the question that I have about the semi-institution um, towards, you know, with America, how is it the judicial system different than America's judicial system? And how do you think not having an army has something to do with that? Because it all kind of ties into all of that, like not having an army. It, you, you're thinking that more people should be in prison because there's not an army, you know? And so no, no. which, you know? No, I, I, don't, I, was so. I don't see that as a connection. Yeah, I don't. That's interesting. I, that's, I was thinking that because, you know, you, I look at it like this. So you don't have anyone to lay, kind of lay the law or like um, you don't have an army to fight your war. And so I was thinking like, there should be more prisons here. There should more be people. I'm, I'm, but that's the ignorance that I had. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, I think, um, yeah, they obviously they did away with their army in 1948, I think it was, um, and yeah. diverted that money into the educational system. Um, they actually have uh, military protection, if it's necessary, from partners, the United States being one of those. Um, mm-hmm. But I think um, having a military is actually about protection of the country, and it doesn't drill down to the individual level in terms of criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't in the United States anyway, and I don't think it does there. Um, we actually went to Cuba, and now their military, their police are military, so it's a different perspective there. But in Costa Rica, the um, criminal justice system, it, it is very different from what it is here. And what we visit is a women's semi-institution, and this is a transition institution for women who have served their time and have met certain expectations that can then move to this semi-institution and then begin moving back into society. So it's a little bit more than a halfway house. Um, It's actually a part of the judicial system. Um, 
but it comes from the perspective there, uh, the overriding perspective there in the culture is that individuals are going to be released from prison. And we need to actually prepare them to link back with family and back with community so that when they are, they can actually engage in productive activity through um, work, through contributing to communities. So there's a big linkage, again, because of that traditional culture of um, not the individualism, but the collectivism. So there's a big linkage between the individual coming back into the community. And, and one of the aspects of the ladies coming back from out of prison and into this semi-institution is they, they, they need some support in the community. So that's a big part of what social workers do there is making sure that that community support through family, through church, through whatever that may be is there to help the woman transition back. In Costa Rica, there is no death penalty and you can never receive a sentence more than 50 years. That's just the law there. Um, but they also don't have trial by jury. We have trial by jury. It's all judges that sentence, that convict and sentence there. So there's trade-offs all the way as to what's the, what's, what aspects work and what aspects are better or worse for the, um, you know, the particular culture you're in. So it is a different perspective and, and you can see that difference there, that cultural difference in terms of there is there is a focus on the individual and responsibility, but it's also very closely tied to the systems and the structures that allow the individual to accept and carry out and be autonomous and not put blockages up for them, which I think is a little bit different from the perspective we have here where it's all pretty much all on the individual, the responsibility there, and there's not as much focus on any type of invisible barriers or visible barriers that pre- prevent that individual from being able to, um, I guess, act on that responsibility and, and have some agency in the decisions they're making. Right. So I found it very interesting when we um, went to um, to visit the, the system, the prison, that it's not called the halfway house. I, I think to my institution. To my institution, we sat it at the table and, and spoke with the young with the um, with the young lady. They were saying, unless like unless I heard this absolutely wrong, they were saying that the recid- the recidivism rate is ninety two percent. No, did I hear? They're that? saying that their no. success rate is ninety two percent. They okay. have less so than eight percent who reoffend who leave that program. Right, okay. I, I had to make sure. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, did I hear that wrong? I'm like, let me talk to um, Dr. Judd. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah, they no, they have a, because they were translating. And so we kind of got right with a lot of people. Right. Yeah. It does. Um, no, they actually have a high success rate. So it's less than 8% of the women who actually reoffend or return into the system that come through that semi-institution program. And so... Is that would that be something likely for the rest of the country, or is it just for this program only? I don't have numbers for the rest of the country. Um, just this program, because this is the one that we visit and are so intimately aware of. Okay, I was curious about that because I was looking. I was like, let me talk about Joe before I go into any deeper uh, <laughs> research. <laughs> so, a question I have: I would like to know your opinion about something. So, in your opinion. Mm-hmm. 
How do you think the prison system could change for the better in the United States? You know, you're back and forth with Costa Rica, and you're seeing the success rate um, of how um, how they work with the semi-institutions um, in Costa Rica. How do you think that we here in the United States could, you know, kind of change or do something similar? Or do you think it could change because, you know, because we are so different or yeah. Well, I think what we have to, what we're actually going to have to look at, and it's actually one of the grand challenges for social work, the profession of social work moving over the next 10 years or so, is what's called smart decarceration. Um, yeah. In the 70s, when we went to very low tolerance for drug offenses, um, the prison population just, I mean, it just exploded. Uh, with mandatory sentences for, you know, drugs and things like that. But what's happening now is while our incarceration numbers just escalated, well, we're at a period of time where our decarceration numbers are also going to escalate because individuals have served these long prison systems and now they're they're ready to be released. Um, we don't have strong structures or a strong culture of, embracing individuals who have, for all practical purposes, paid their debt to society, like we like to say, um, and bringing them back in and providing them opportunities for change. It's very difficult. If if you entered into our institutional system at age 23, um, obviously without skills and without um, the necessary coping strategies, whatever it is to be successful in society, and then you are in this system for 10, 15 years, nothing in the system provides you with the skills you were lacking when you went into it. So you're coming out with those same lacking. Plus there's the barriers in terms of being able to get employment, Um, being able to get housing, being able to um, connect back with society, connect back with family, connect back with community. So there's some structural things, I believe, that we need to really look at and address for those who are coming out of prison. Um, When we talk about crime prevention and we talk about um, sentencing, we talk about things like that. That's that's, That's a different avenue. But if we're talking about decarceration and bringing individuals who have been um, in a very highly structured, um, which is necessary, I get that, but a very highly structured environment for extensive years, and then all of a sudden it's free choice and free will with lots of barriers out there, it's, it's just an extreme and it makes it more difficult for the individual to exert responsibility and agency in making good positive decisions. They lack the skills, they lack the structure, um, they lack the opportunities, um, you know, so we, we we have to pay more attention to that. Absolutely. With the semi-institution that we um, attended, did they speak about something like, so they have this program they go through, and when they go mm-hmm. through the program, um, they teach the young ladies to how to get back into society. And so mm-hmm. this is why it explains why there's an 8% of them going back, because mm-hmm. you're, they're actually being taught how to reenter society the correct way, number one. Um, number two, um, once they have fulfilled or, you know, their, uh, their debt to society, did I hear this right or did I 
I hear this right, you know, <laughs> translating mm-hmm. back and forth, what they do is take it off their off their record. Is that what I heard correctly? Eventually, eventually, that? yes, their record can be expunged. Yes, um, at some point in time. What and what happens too is when they leave the the intensive semi-institution program and they're back into the community, the follow-up doesn't stop. So there's still connection with the different services and with the social workers um, that continue to follow them. And at some point down the road, they are able to have their criminal history expunged from their record. Therefore, when they're seeking different jobs, new jobs, um, seeking to grow education, whatever, then that is not following them. That is not going to be a barrier for them to be able to continue to grow. Absolutely. But it's like a scarlet letter. It's like on, on your back, hey, no one wants right. to employ you. So how are you mm-hmm. going to how are you going to support yourself? Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, exactly. And and it's it's um it's definitely a catch-22 because if you're a business person and you have the safety of the individuals you're working for that work for you, um, not just to mention your financial safety and all that, you know, there is going to be some resistance to allowing individuals these opportunities. That's the bridge we've got to come out overcome. That's what we've got to develop programs and systems that are going to allow us to embrace individuals who can change. If, if we're a country that believes in individualism and the ability to change and to grow, then we have to give individuals the opportunity to demonstrate they've done that. Absolutely. Because I feel, in my opinion, you said it's a catch-22, but you have those that are still working the businesses and companies that just haven't got caught. <laughs> you know? Well, you and, there, and there is. And there is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have people that, yeah. you know, that haven't been to prison or doing the same thing that a person got caught, haven't got caught. So does that, mm-hmm. to me, it's kind of like, okay, this person got caught. They, they're giving their life to society. They're dead. They went to prison. They're doing what they need to do. Okay, they got, I'm not going to do it again. To me, you should give those people chances. And I think we're in a society where mm-hmm. it's hard for people to give a person a chance, especially if the person's working hard, you know, to to change right. that narrative of their story. Yeah, yeah, it it is. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, those are some things that we have to grapple with and we have to do better at in our country. Absolutely. So, so we're going down this road of, you know, the list that we went through. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go to the education system now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. um, we visit the school. Um, Mm -hmm. it, It wasn't in La Fortuna, was it? It was... School of San Francisco? Yeah, in San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just outside of it's outside of La Fortuna, um, there by the Soltis Center. Um hmm. the school of San Francisco. Is it San Ramon? I don't I actually don't remember. I think it is I think it was San Ramon. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna go to the children. So which I learned they call people in Costa Rica Ticos. <laughs> so <do laughs> it's you, a cultural name, uh-huh. Yeah. So do you think that what what I observed is that they get out and play. They get out and involve themselves in the community. They get out and they, you know, make their, you know, they, they farm. They get the vitamin D. They get out and play. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that makes them happier and healthier? Um, do you think being more active in their community puts them in a place of more positive psychological effects in their growth and development? And if, if yes, can you, like, if you if you support that answer, what I just said, yes. If not, I'm kind of curious about that. So the question is <laughs> um, kind of like, 
do you think that Tico children get out and play and more active in the community and with a more positive psychological effect and growth in their development? Well, I think, um, and I can only speak anecdotally um, because I don't, I don't have research in front of me to back it up. But uh, we've we've been going to um, the School of San Francisco now. I think we've been there ten times, eleven times over the last several years, um, and so we've actually watched a lot of these children grow. But to understand the context, the School of San Francisco is kind of a very unique educational experience there in Costa Rica, almost what we would consider like a charter school here. Um, but in this particular school, the principal over the years has created the school is self-sustaining. So that what, what that means is the children actually grow their own food. It's right. organically grown, um, and it's a part of the educational system. So an example would be for like if the first graders are learning to count, then they go out to the farm and they're told they need to pick 10 apples for that day. And so they count the 10 apples. So it's all integrated together. So it's a holistic um, educational experience. So they have their farm. They've added the tilapia farm. The children actually raise the tilapia. The children actually clean their own school. Um, uh, two years ago, three years ago, the children came up with a research project where they created a way to capture all the rainwater. And so the only potable water that's actually used at the school is for drinking or cooking. Mm -hmm. The rainwater actually is used for cleaning, for um, when they have to water anything in the garden, which they usually don't because they're in the rainforest, but and for taking care of the animals because they also have their own farm. So they get their own eggs. Um, they're very connected to their food system, so they understand that when you kill a chicken, that that's lunch. Um, and right. so they understand in raising that chicken how important it is that that chicken's healthy because then they're taking that meat into their body. So there's a big connection there. Inherent in that is physical activity. You know, inherent in that is actually getting out, applying the concepts that they're learning in the classroom to the farm, to the sustainability, and there's support from the community and the parents. All of this goes back to the original work of the director from 20 years ago, and it's a passion that she's had, and so she's brought aboard teachers and others who, who have this passion. Um, this is a unique experience in Costa Rica. However, it is now being set up as the model for the educational system across the country um, because they, they've done so well. And the, and the children, um, well, what they told us several years ago, and I just love this quote, is they're growing a new citizen. They're trying to grow a citizen that actually understands about the importance of the environment and maintaining sustainability and growing things without pesticides and being proactive. And these children actually win national science awards. A couple of years ago, they won a science award. There's a certain type of bee that's actually um, becoming extinct because of pesticides. And so it's not pollinating a particular plant that needs to be pollinated. So the children actually this is grade school, they came up with a way to artificially pollinate this particular plant. Um, so they actually apply, they come up with research ideas and then the school sets it up so that they can develop it, apply it and carry it through. So they're, what they learn, they're actually carrying back into the environment. So it's a very unique um, experience, but it is an amazing experience. And again, you were asking about the physical activity there. 
and there is more physical activity, especially in the rural areas. Um, children only go to school half a day. Um, and so in, you know, whether they're going in the morning or the afternoons, cause they split, some go in the morning, some go in the afternoon, uh, they're, they're more physically active and it's not really in organized activities such as, um, the organized sports that we have here in the United States, you know, they have the free play and things like that. Um, I know our bodies physically are made to move. That's what we should Absolutely. be doing with our bodies at all ages to maintain our health and the more sedentary we get, it has physical consequences, psychological consequences and social consequences. And so when we have our children who are in a developmental stage, sitting in a classroom and in a chair for hours during the day and not actually being able to move and act upon that inherent need that we have to move and experience growth and um, work our muscles and get the oxygen through our brains and things like that, it, it, it is going to create some problems. It's going to create some inability to focus and things like that. So I do think from a perspective of, of food and a perspective of activity um, that we could, in, in a developed country like the United States, that we could actually do so much better on helping the children grow and develop um, by allowing more activity and recognizing and being closer to our food chain and what that means. So that's, those are differences that I've seen over the years in that educational system um, and just the culture that's there that I think we could also learn from. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, when I, I really love the fact that we were in the rainforest and then we went to the uh, went to the capital. And I really, I sat back and observed, um, Dr. Judd, how how I didn't see obesity in the mm-hmm. rainforest. It's like mm-hmm. the country in the rainforest. Mm-hmm. And then when we went to the to the capital to the city. I saw mm-hmm. obesity. I saw more people that were unhealthy. And I'm not saying that because of the city, because I saw more westernized restaurants. There, yeah, I was going to say, what did you see in the city? And actually, you yeah. see McDonald's. <laughs> you see McDonald's on Star every corner. Star. You see KFC. Absolutely. You see. Um, so the infiltration of Western fast food is actually been linked to increasing obesity, increasing diabetes, um, increasing heart conditions they're in that country because they were, they're a developing country and they've been able to see as these capitalistic opportunities are coming in mm-hmm. from where they've been a very agrarian society and farmers bring their, their homegrown, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like that into the farmer's market. Now individuals are becoming much more what we like to say busy in their lives and, and these opportunities are there to eat the fast food. So they are seeing some changes in the health, and the wellness of the individuals there. And you do see that stark contrast between the rural areas and the urban areas. Absolutely. Because I was like, it, but it was, it wasn't a small, it was a drastic change. Mm-hmm. It is. It was, it's a drastic change. It wasn't like, oh, a couple obesity people here and a little couple. Of, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my, the food was different. Everything tasted, the people were different. Not, Mm-hmm. Not drastically different, but they were different. Uh-huh. Um, when I was in the um, in the royal area, um, I saw more. I, I didn't see any homelessness. Um, 
if, if if I if I didn't see it, like I didn't when we were in La Fortuna, I didn't see any homelessness. I did not. I did, and I paid attention to this. Like I came there to like open like open my eyes. Mm-hmm. And when we went to when we went to um, San Jose, I saw more homelessness. When I was in La Fortuna, it was more of a, like a community. I did not see any homelessness because I was looking. <laughs> I was looking. I was taking notes. Yeah. And that's not going to be totally different from what you're going to see in the United States because homelessness is going to be much more congregated into those urban areas, um, and you're not going to see it necessarily across the more rural, small community areas. Um, and, and there's different factors that relate to that. So that's going to kind of parallel what happens here in, in Western society, too. Okay, because I because I was looking, I was like, okay, homelessness. Because we are we 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 came to a country that's very poor, and so it, there are pockets of it, yes, that are that are um, absolutely. And I I think they're still considered a developing country, um, right? You know, not third world, but they're developing, and there's there's a lot of advancement there. But there is a big difference in the socioeconomic status um, in many individuals there. Oh. One more. Okay, I think we're doing like two more questions because I'm like, okay, at the time I was like, let me, because I can talk forever with you. <laughs> so I, I had to keep my, I had to keep myself on the time offline. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> so we talked about the judicial system. We mm-hmm. talked about the education. We talked about. I want to. I want to emphasize more on. We we talked about like being active. And mm-hmm. the food, and the food and activity, and the culture. So I'm going to towards that, towards that active aging. Remember okay. we went to the community center, mm-hmm. and I we were was it were we salsa dancing? Because you know we did Zumba. The, Zumba. The, the Zumba class. Yes. Let me see something. That he was set. I don't know what his name was. He was 73. I think he was 73 years old. 73. And he, mm-hmm. and he outdanced everybody. In the in the Zumba class, mm-hmm. he's an instructor, and he's been doing it thirty plus years. Mm-hmm. But what I but what I did take note, those that participated, that you know, that live in the country, the Ticos that you know, in that community, um, they 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 were right with them. It was like no heavy breathing. Everybody was dancing. Everybody mm-hmm. was happy. Everybody was moving. When I compare and do the compare and contrast with here in the United States with the uh, you know, in our community here in Texas, I don't see that. And when you do see that, they live in a different um, demographic as far as a financial. You know, right? So they, mm-hmm. they don't they don't live like um, in the urban communities doing that. Absolutely not. They live they they live in you know of a, 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 a higher finance. You know, mm-hmm. park. <laughs> you know, right? Um, Lakewood. I'm just Frisco. And so I'm just kind of like. I wasn't, it wasn't there. We were more in the rural area and um, doing those classes in the community. And they were just, they were in such a, a healthy, happy space. And so when mm-hmm. it comes to the act of living, act of aging, I, what you said before, you know, it, it goes from, from adolescence all the way to the, to the elderly. You do have to keep moving. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. physical activity, psychological act, um, mm-hmm. um, activity is like so important. And so, the question I would like to ask with the active aging, 
because you've been going there, what, you've been there like 11 times or you've been going there 11 years? 10, 10, well, because the last few years we've gone twice. So my first, my very first time to go was in 2010. My first time to take students was in, no, first time to go was 2011. My first time to take students was 2013. And I've taken students 10 times now, I believe. So you be going there, what, 10, 10 plus years? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Every time you, when you go, when you come back and you look into our, our aging here in the United States, do you, do you have a suggestion what we should do differently besides, like, I know we should eat better because I, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, we should eat it. better, but, mm-hmm. but what else would you suggest? Like, well, and again, it has to become, it has to be enculturated and it has to, you have to be able to embrace um, being physically active. We have, mm-hmm. we have a whole industry, a whole commercial industry that's mm-hmm. geared at making things easier for us in terms of physical activity, um, so making things more convenient. Um, and we, we actually have to get back to looking at opportunities to be physically active. And I think you can attest to this because one thing that we tell students before we go is we encourage you to become more active because it's a very physically draining trip. We do a lot of walking. Even in, when we're in the city, there's a lot of walking. There's, it's just very physically challenging. Um, and our students think that they've actually met that challenge until they get there. So we don't realize the level of physical acti- physical inactivity, I think, that we engage in here in the United States until we experience something like that. So we think going to the gym three times a week is actually going to maintain good physical activity. And it, don't get me wrong, it, it's important, but don't get me wrong, I mean, it's, it, it's important that you do that, but you, we, we need to incorporate it every day in our lives. Don't take the elevator. Take the stairs. Um, you know, don't. I, the, the little town I live in, our post office is like maybe five, seven blocks from me. I don't get in the car and drive to the post office. I walk to the post office, no matter what the heat is or whatever. So we actually have to embrace more of the physical activity. Our bodies are made to move. They are made Absolutely. to they're made to take care of us so that we can walk and we can lift things and we can bend and we can do things. And if we don't do that from birth all the way through death, if we don't do that, then we're developing problems with the knees. We're developing problems with our elbows. We're developing, and we think it's because of overuse. And I'm going to argue and say a lot of times it's because of lack of use. Um, So I think we just have to, we, we have to, we have to look at it differently um, we we work and I'm at work eight hours a day and I'm in a chair and so when I come home I'm exhausted and I want to eat fast food you know when I come home I should be going and running about three miles um, Absolutely. you know doing something because because my job is structured to the point where I have to sit in a chair all day so um, I ran my first half marathon at age 52. Um, so, and I've ran, I've ran 13 since then. And so, um, it's, you know, we have to keep active and plus it helps our mental, um, our, our mental hygiene. It helps us socially. 
we just have to embrace that. And so we need much more of a commercial industry that supports that. But mm-hmm. you know what? There nobody nobody can sell me anything to walk to the post office. So it's not something that anybody's going to develop an industry for, right? Um, you know, if they can't sell me a gym membership to come in three times a day. but And you don't have to spend money to become physically active. The flip side of that is we actually have to be very aware because in urban areas, um, there are areas that are not safe for individuals to be outside and be physically active. And that's something we need to address also. Absolutely. Um, when you When you spoke about being mentally healthy, which um which in congruence with 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 the aging um what really made me well me thinking about this right now is remember mm-hmm. when we went and helped the um the elderly um at the at the center the community center um write their numbers in uh, uh-huh. in english and so mm-hmm. i think that if they want mentally healthy or, you know, active, getting an oxygen to the brain, um, mm-hmm. to me, they wouldn't be as quick. Because the young, the older mm-hmm. guy that I um, actually helped, he's like 78 years old. Mm-hmm. And he was so determined, first of all, but he was so smart. They, mm-hmm. they, he just started, you know, adding and writing the numbers that he caught on very, very quickly. And I think that uh-huh. if he wasn't active, if he probably wasn't in the community walking those miles and doing those Zuma classes and, and you know, walking probably to the, mm-hmm. to the Catholic churches and being involved in, in being just, this being all around active, I don't, uh-huh. I, I really think that he wouldn't been able to catch on as quick. As it's a holistic package. It's it's a holistic package. We can't just isolate one thing and say this will make a difference in our lives. We have to embrace it all, and it has to do with, again, diet, with physical activity, with right. um, lifelong learning, staying active. Um, neural research now shows that as you're aging, one of the best ways to preserve mental capacity is to learn a new language, um, to do something you've never done. You've never played the piano at 60, go take piano lessons. At 70, go take piano lessons. It, it's the new learning that creates the new um, the new wiring in the brain. And, and we know now from, neuro, from understanding neuroplasticity that we can learn at any age, uh, but we have to actively look for those opportunities um, and we're not we're a pretty passive we're a pretty pretty passive group um, in terms of our food and our activity and our learning opportunities we're going to just sit around and let somebody bring it to us but we've got to change that so that we can age age healthy um, which again trickles down and makes society better all all the way around uh, what what you're saying makes completely sense. <clears throat> makes complete sense. So going back to the active part of it. So when I got back here um, mm-hmm. in the States, I started walking an hour every morning from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. every day. I've lost 10 mm-hmm. pounds. That's mm-hmm. not including the boxing that I do. I'm very, very active. But when uh-huh. I start getting up in the morning, so if you walk an, an hour, I walk about four and a half, five miles every morning. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I so what has happened is that I changed my diet because I went to Costa Rica and had it. I'm telling you, I like a life changing experience. <laughs> right. So I'm like I start spending my money differently because mm-hmm. I'm like it doesn't cost that much to live. 
Um, I, no, it um, doesn't. It I doesn't changed, have to. Uh-uh. I changed my I changed my membership, which I'm paying cheap for where I'm at now. I'm like, if they can do it in Costa Rica, and mm-hmm. I know I can do it here in the United States. So I took I took what I've learned there and brought it here, and mm-hmm. and helped myself in a in a more physical aspect of things. Mm-hmm. And a financial aspect of things. Wonderful. <laughs> and dietary. I heard you mention diet. Yeah, and diet. So yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I took things out of my out of my diet, like a lot of meat. I'm not eating any barely any meat. Mm-hmm. Um I dish fish and chicken. Um I'm light on the rice, a lot of a lot of vegetables, ton of mm-hmm. water. Like I've always been healthy, but I wasn't as healthy as I thought I was. Mhm. Right. Yeah, you right. know. And so I was like, wow, having that experience, being able to go to a country and really, really, truly experience it. And I, and I experienced it the way I experienced it because of the study abroad program at Texas A&M Commerce. And, of course, awesome. you too. You like, you know, and, of course, you had a lot <laughs> to do with, with, uh, with it because you've, you've, built, you've built this program that's absolutely amazing. Well, I appreciate and, that, and that's exactly what I hope students get out of it is they bring back, and I challenge every student to change a minimum of one thing in your life when you come back. And I, I think I've changed like three. <laughs> good, good, and I hope you continue. I hope it continues to change. I hope it continues for growth because that's what's important. So we're almost done with this interview. We're going to wrap this thing up. Do you think, okay, what would what would you, as being the profession, suggest that those that are struggling with mental health issues, mm-hmm. um, what would you suggest them to do? Because going into that, going to Costa Rica, um, their their whole life, what I saw had everything to do with mental health, the way they eat, they, they're active, mm-hmm. um, the way they um, interact with the, with the community. So, mm-hmm. what would you suggest um, those that are struggling with mental health issues? Um, because of life quality, how would you, what would you suggest to have a better quality of life? Like what would be your suggestion? Okay. I want to, I want to make a clear distinction here because there are, there is mental illness and there's individuals who have um, mental illness, such as schizophrenia, such as bipolar that actually require some very, um, it can require medication, it can require therapeutic interventions, it can require a lot of things. So I'm not addressing that, okay? I want to be very clear that I make a distinction between mental illness and the needs of those individuals who have mental illness versus mental hygiene. And for me, mental hygiene has to do with those of us who are the average functioning individuals out there and tend to live at the effect of the circumstances in our life. And that's, to me, that's where you can improve your quality of life because any circumstance in life, we have no control over it. You know, my mom recently passed away. I have no control over that. But what I have control over is how I think about that event, how I think about her passing and embracing her life and embracing the legacy she gave me and embracing the things that she um, left behind. Um, you know, you, absolutely there is, there's grief and there's loss and there's that, but I can also manage my thoughts about that because her death is neutral and individuals will actually challenge me on that. And I'm like, no, 
The death is neutral. It's what I make it mean that impacts my psychological well-being. Because if there's, if I have an extended family member or an aunt or something like that that I don't have daily contact with, and I learn a week after her death that she died, her death did not impact me. Until I learned about it, I didn't have a thought about it. Mm. So it's it, what we have to realize is it's the thoughts that we're choosing to think about any of those life circumstances that are happening. They don't have, they don't happen to us. They happen and we make them mean something. And it's something as small as um, somebody says something to me that I find offensive. Okay. Well, they're, they're, their words were neutral. It's the meaning I gave to those words that impact how I think and feel. So for me, for those of us who are functioning without mental illness, again, I want to very clearly make that distinction, but those of us who are just functioning on a day-to-day basis and get and feel down and feel depressed and feel sad because of things that are happening in our lives, I think that we have to realize we're choosing those thoughts. Hmm. If I lose a job, either because I'm terminated or because of um, a layoff, I can choose to think, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to feed my family now. This, you know, I can go down that whole road or I can choose to think, okay, this is going to give me an opportunity to try something different. Maybe I've got to find a job I don't like until I can move into something else. So learning to, to really Think about our thoughts. I guess that's what it is. Think about the thoughts that we're having, why we're choosing to have those thoughts, and getting to the, the crux of why we're choosing to have those thoughts, and then saying, okay, how can I think about this differently? Along with that, we actually also have to be willing to experience those negative feelings. I had to be willing to experience the grief about the loss of my mother, um, resisting that and trying to put it aside will only make it rare itself more later. So we don't like to feel uncomfortable. We don't like to feel bad. We don't want to feel embarrassed. We don't want to feel humiliated. We don't want to feel sad. So we will buffer those things. Um, we'll watch Netflix for 18 hours or we'll, um, we'll eat our emotions or we'll do something like that. So for me, it really comes back to being very in tune about what I'm thinking about the circumstance and why I'm choosing to think about that and how it's, how it's resulting in my feelings, which then result in my actions. I think that's what we could do better. Um, For those of us who are functioning in the norm, in the day-to-day norm of society, that's what we could do better. Not being reactive, but saying, okay, all right. You know, I've I've got this, um, I'm experiencing this negative emotion. I'm, I'm feeling really bad. There's this vibration in my body, and I don't like the way it feels. What's fueling that? What's the thought? Why am I choosing to think that? Where am I going with that? Okay, let me experience it because it's going to go away eventually, and then let me choose to think something differently about the action. It takes a lot of work. It's it's daily work. Um, it takes a whole lot of work, um, and and I'm I'm not always good at it, but um, I, I actually do work on that daily for me in terms of managing my thoughts and managing my mind. And I think that's what we all could do better for our mental hygiene. 
you know what, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, um, I have to learn how I'm learning to manage my emotions and manage Mm -hmm. my actions because when you don't manage those things, it allows the other person to have your power. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if, if I am, um, I I don't want to give my power away, especially to, um, to somebody that I'm having a negative thought about, why do I want to give them that power? You know, it's Absolutely. like, uh, you know, my husband and I, we have this conversation cause I've taught him these, these things that I've learned and I've discovered. And, um, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you're making me so angry. You're frustrating me so much. And he'll just look at me and he go, Hmm, you're being my little victim, aren't you? Because he's not, ang- it's nothing he's doing is making me angry. It's my thought about what he's doing. That's making me angry. I, that's, that's all it is. It's, that, you know, so um, it's 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 a lot of work. Um, it's daily work. Sometimes it's hourly work. But I truly think that that makes my life better. And I'm not afraid of failing. I'm not afraid of making mistakes. And I know I've talked I talked to students about this because it's like we have this culture where the first time we take a test on the first time we've ever studied the subject, we're supposed to get everything right. And it's like no, we. Let's look at the failure. I failed this test, so let me come back and say, what can I do differently here? How can I learn differently? Because of the thoughts we have about making mistakes or experiencing a negative emotion, we limit our growth. We limit our opportunities. We limit ourselves and our goals. So those are just some things that I try to work on daily, and and I hope that I can help others work on daily. I think that's just an important part of the human experience. Absolutely. So... Um, I, so usually I ask at the end of the interview, I ask, how can we, like, how can people find you in your work? But trust mm-hmm. me, guys, she's hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and I have to get over that part. <laughs> but she does have uh, social media. I'm very <laughs> grateful that she's a professor at Texas a and Commerce. So mm-hmm. how can people find your work? Like, how can people okay. find you? Actually, you you can find me through Texas A&M Commerce, obviously, through the website there um, in the School of Social Work. I have also just launched, and it is not, it is in the very beginning stages, but if you go to practicalpractice411.com, that is an online continuing education unit um, for social workers uh, that I've just launched. Um, there's a lot of good upcoming learning opportunities for that, and I hope to get it fully up and running at least by after the first of the year, um, adding new stuff almost weekly there. And then I will also be offering a test prep course for students who are preparing for the licensure exam. I, I, wrote, for, I wrote for the licensure exam for five years. Oh, I haven't oh written God. for them now for almost five years. So I'm in the okay. process of building that. It's, it's a passion I have because I want, I want social workers to have good lifelong learning opportunities. And what I've discovered is once you leave the classroom, Sometimes those aren't readily available. I have to renew my license every year, and some of the continuing education units that I found online were really just doing time. I didn't want to do that, so I'm trying to offer some opportunities for social workers after they've graduated to continue those lifelong learning opportunities. It's very much in the baby stages, 
But if you will okay. go to Practical Practice 411, it's actually called the Practical Practice Academy. But if you go to okay. practicalpractice411.com, you'll find the okay. website and um, where we're beginning that process. And there's a few um, continuing education units that are available now, um, but you'll see what's coming in the future too. It's called Practical Practical 411? Practical Practice 411, all one word, dot com. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I'm going to do, guys, I'm going to put that on the Health Shows website. So we, we do, we just launched our new website. It looks absolutely amazing. So what I'll do, Dr. Judd, I'll put that on our mm -hmm. website and direct Wonderful. traffic um, from our website to your website for different awesome. um, social, for social workers and also for just, you know, people in the community. It, it is, yeah, yeah, it'll be there. And, and, you know, we're eventually going to, once I can get the content ready, you know, there'll be some free opportunities and things like that. Um, and because um, I have such a um, commitment to the university and to students learning in the classroom, I'm not able to commit as much time to this as I want to, but um, it, it's, it's coming along and I hope in the next year that it's going to be just absolutely amazing for social work practitioners. I'm excited about this. Hey guys, you, you heard it first. <laughs> That's right, and actually you did. That's the first public of it. <laughs> so Thank you, thank you, thank you for interviewing um, with the Help Show. Also, if you need any help, let me know here at the Help Show. We're always, if you need help with, um, you know, with your website or if you need some help getting things together, thank you. I'm, I'm open. I'm always open. I appreciate and I it. That, and I, I say it sincerely. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. So, and thank you for having thank me. You. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you or someone you know is in crisis, whether they are considering suicide or not, please call the toll-free lifeline at 800-273-TALK to speak with a trained crisis counselor 24-7. That number is 800-273-8255. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline connects you with the crisis center and the lifeline network closest to your location. Your call will be answered by a trained crisis worker who will listen empathetically and without judgment. The crisis worker will work to ensure that you feel safe and help identify options and information about mental health services in your area. Your call is confidential and free. Crisis text line text NAMI to 741-741. That's text NAMI to 741-741. Connect with a trained crisis counselor to receive free 24-7 crisis support via text message.